I went and talked to, you know, this trainer and this trainer, they told me I'm not allowed to come by. Like I'm allowed to drop the horse off and pick the horse up. Wow. And don't come by, don't come watch training. Like it's a closed door mm-hmm. policy. And I was like, what? <laughs> like, <laughs> I'm like, no, come watch, like come participate. Like there's only so much that that horse can do with me that they're that you're going to be able to do with the horse if you don't come and ride it and have me coach you. Welcome to the Horsewoman Project, a podcast where we talk about all things horsewoman, from relationships to truck issues, taking care of your nutrition and fitness, and of course, horses. Hello, Camry. So I'm really excited for this one because I get to dive into Camry's story and pick her brain. Camry has been one of my really good friends the last couple of years. I've worked with her and have had the opportunity to learn from her as well. So I'm really, really excited to jump into your story today. I guess a little bit about Camry. Camry is the owner and head trainer at J Family Equine, located in central Utah. She grew up in Utah County and actually didn't start riding horses until her senior year of high school, which blows my mind. Because <laughs> like, if you know Camry, she like lives and breathes horses. Like that's, that's all she does. And so when I first found that out, it just blew my mind. Anyways, so she finally got into horses when she found some time to monk out stalls and in trade for lessons at it was like Melville Stables, wasn't it in Orem? Yep. Very cool. So from there, she enrolled in the equine science and management program at Utah State University, where she went from a beginner to a professional in the equine industry. After college, she had the opportunity of being hired to manage a breeding and training barn in Virginia, after which she had the unique opportunity to work with the famous ponies, which inspired the book Misty of Chincoteague, which I know I like, did not do that name justice, so you'll have to correct me in a minute. (laughs) and even got to start the great-granddaughter of the original Misty. This is so cool. Um, Now, Camry has a successful cult-starting business in central Utah, where she focuses on building confidence and connection between horse and rider. She has a passion for connection and hosts connection-based retreats where horse women can come connect with each other and their horses. And like I said, as a past client and assistant trainer of Camry's, I can attest to her abilities and skills in working with both humans and horses. She has helped me greatly with my personal connection and my horses and being able to tune up my own training style. And her style of teaching and training are just some of the most unique that I have found that has just really connected with me and how I have been able to work with my own horses. So I'm really, really excited to dive into your story today. Thanks for uh having me yeah well okay so <laughs> fix my name misty of chinkatigue okay because <laughs> like i said i know i like i even practiced like five times before we got on. say it five times fast <laughs> but that is so cool so that's like the place where they um where they're like ponies right and then they like swim them across the river and do like a trail, don't they yeah, so there's actually two islands. There's Chincoteague and there's Assateague. And every year they swim all the horses across from Assateague over to Chincoteague and they auction off the babies. Um, so they actually do that to do population control because there are zero predators for the horse population on the island. So they have to make sure that there's enough food for all the horses there. And 
Wow. So yeah, it's kind of fun seeing them swim across the, the channel. Yeah. Did you get to actually do that with them? Uh, I got to uh, stand on the shore and watch. Oh, cool. That's way, way cool. So let's just like jump into your story here. Tell me a little bit about what growing up was like for you. Uh, I grew up a city girl in Orem, Utah, um, which is if uh, most people just know Salt Lake. So I'm about an hour south of Salt Lake is where I grew up. I have two older sisters, one younger brother. Uh, my younger brother is probably who I'm closest with. Um, we were buddies growing up. We would make pillow beds in each other's rooms and sleep next to each other. And people always thought we were twins because he was you know, a boy and bigger. And I was, even though I was two and a half years older, I was his size. <laughs> so not twins, but close. That's cute. So mainly girls then in your household. I yes. That. That's cool. <laughs> so with that, like you didn't ride until your senior year. So were any of your family into horses? Was that just like your kind of thing <laughs> that was a me thing my uncle um is i call him my cowboy uncle uncle on he's into horses he's been into horses since he was a kid um his dad my grandpa had horses but no my immediate family nobody else is uh nobody else rides nobody else is into horses just me <laughs> wow that's like so cool to like see where you're at now and to just realize that that was just not even a part of your life like how crazy <laughs> So with that, like, how was your family pretty supportive with you getting into horses? Or was that kind of like a, what are you doing, Camry? Like, why are you doing this? Actually, they were very supportive. My dad actually even helped me research into what universities had equine programs and which ones were reputable, good programs, um, and which ones were affordable for our family. Uh, and my parents really helped me get that step into college when I started really getting, diving into horses um and they've been super supportive all along the way from the beginning all the way till now so that's amazing I feel like honestly that's kind of unique because I know like in my own story my my parents were super supportive but I had a lot of like other family members who were like what the heck are you doing like there's <laughs> no money in horses so it's pretty I got that too <laughs> that from like extended family yes <laughs> yeah you're just a little girl that thinks ponies are pretty. It's just a stage. You'll get out of it, right? Well, yep. Well, isn't it fun to be like where you're at now and you're like, yeah, I made it work. See, guys? <laughs> All right. Now, something fun about you. Tell us your most embarrassing story from growing up. So it was not publicly embarrassing. I'm probably going to regret sharing this because it shows a side of me. <laughs> That's why it's embarrassing. It's embarrassing. My family will not let me live this down. So um, I was blessed to have my parents pay for me to go on a trip to France for nine days when I was in middle school. So I went with my French class, a small group from my French class, I should say. And um, I was so excited. I would, I bought little gifts and trinkets and things for each member of my family. And, you know, you're traveling a long way. So you only have so much luggage space and everything. So I got home from my vacation <laughs> and I was so excited. I bust open my suitcase. I'm like, oh, Preston, this is for you. Shalee, this is for you. Kylie, this is for you. Mom and dad, this is for you. And then I just went, <sighs> 
And I got so frustrated. <laughs> and I said, I spent so much time buying things for you, stupid people. I didn't buy anything for me. <laughs> and then I just like hit the ground and just started crying. And if that doesn't just like show you what middle school is like and <laughs> and my family to this day, you stupid people, they always quote me on it. And I'm always like, oh yeah. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> my life. <laughs> That's hilarious. That's so, so funny. That's so funny that it stuck into your brain that much because it's like, man, I'm sure I did that a million times. <laughs> How cool is that that you got to go to another country in middle school? That is so cool. And even further, I actually got to go to seven different countries in Europe when I was in high school. I was oh, kind wow. of spoiled. My parents took very good care of me. <laughs> wow, that is amazing. Wow. So like when you went to France, was it just for fun? Was it with a certain group or? Um, so my French teacher organized a group with several of the kids in my French class. Um, oh, okay. And we went as a group to see the culture and practice the language with natives. And Wow. That yeah. is really neat. Huh. That's so cool. So kind of like jumping back into the horse world. So you're, you're over like exploring Europe and doing all these fun things. <laughs> <laughs> what? What kept you from like being able to be around horses? Because like, I mean, it sounds like your family was pretty well off if you were able to go to Europe and things like, how come you didn't have your own horse growing up? I think I just didn't really know that I could. Like, <laughs> I don't know. And I was also so busy with the other things I was passionate about at the time that I think those just kind of took over. Um, I was big into choir um, and singing and piano. I did a lot of music stuff growing up. And that was actually um, my second option for what career I would go into. Um, it would have been something involved in music, whether it be coaching or performing or things like that. Um, and then soccer was another huge thing. I was into actually quite a few sports. Soccer was my favorite, but I also did track, uh, high jumping. Um, I did softball for a lot of years. Um, so I stayed very busy and very active. So I think it just kind of was like diving into the horse world is just, I don't know, it seems intimidating, right? When you're a city person and you don't even know that like, <laughs> how to lease a horse or how to like buy a horse or what, you know, you just don't know. So. That's true. Well, and you're so busy. It's like, who has time to get a horse, <laughs> take care of it if you're in all these different things. So that makes sense. So yeah. kind of going from that, like what, what spurred you into like deciding, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to go muck stalls for lessons and like, and doing that and finding the time for that too. You know, I was kind of wrestling my senior year of, of with the idea of what am I going to go into? What is going to be my major? You know, am, am I going to go to college? Am I going to go to, you know, another school? You know, what's, what am I going to do with my life? You know, um, and the more I thought about it, the more I'm like, I just, I want to try out this horse stuff. I want to go and learn, take lessons, um, and just see where it takes me. And so I applied to do the work, uh, work for trade kind of thing where I, I mucked stalls and groomed horses and I, I got lessons. Um, and I started with English lessons. It's an English barn there. And I was on a, an old retired horse. I think if I remember right, her name was Galley, a uh, little bay, little bay mare um, that had been a national champion at one point. And, um, and I believe Huntsy. Uh, it's been a few years, so I may be a little fuzzy on the details, but 
I just had a blast and so much fun. And even the mucking, like this might sound weird, but it was just like, I even loved mucking stalls, like <laughs> just being near the horses. And like, I don't know why I remember this horse. I never rode him, um, but I remember this horse meatball. And I think it was just his personality that like he, every time I came in and mucked his stall, he would just like come and put his head on my shoulder. <laughs> and so, yeah, just being around him and feeling that, that energy they have. And I was hooked and it was like, yep, this was what my soul and my spirit were meant to do. And <laughs> in we jumped into the deep end. So. <laughs> I love that. It's like, you know, you've got it when mucking stalls is <laughs> right like when you look at the it's like okay you got the gene <laughs> like <laughs> so what was the most difficult part of jumping into the horse world so late a lot of the like my first year in college a lot of it was the judgment that I got from the other people in the program uh, which I think may have been slightly different had I just started working at a barn and worked my way up uh, but I was the only one in my program uh, at Utah State University that hadn't grown up with horses or at least been in it for several years. So I went in not even knowing the difference between a bay and a sorrel. Um, and so, you know, my senior year in high school into my first year in college was when like I went from zero to like learning all sorts of things. Um, but I definitely got a lot of like judgment because I just didn't have the knowledge yet. And people would just like, oh, you're never going to make it. And like, you just don't know this. And like, they wouldn't even give me the opportunity to learn. Some people, it was the opposite. I definitely had both sides. I had the people that were like, oh yeah, like someone getting into the horse industry. And they were super supportive and, and great coaches, great teachers, great friends. Um, and then you have the other side of the people that are like, <laughs> you're not going to make it. You're, you don't know enough. And right. So it's so funny to like, to hear that and to like have like an outside perspective because it's like yeah we say so late but it's like so you were a kid like we talk about it being like man you got started so late but it's like but actually like you really didn't and it, it's crazy that even from there like especially because you were at a program that was specific for teaching people how to do this right yeah. that you still got that amount of judgment there mm -hmm. that, that's crazy to me yeah with that amount of judgment, what kept you motivated to stay going? Cause like that would have torn a lot of people apart. <laughs> um, I think my infatuation with horses and because it was so fresh and so like, I just love horses. And I finally, after all these years of like wanting to like to be with horses and, and wanting to ride. And I finally got it. It was like, I am not giving this up. Like I finally have what I want. <laughs> So I think, yeah, just that, that it was so fresh and so new and just so like that passion was just so fiery. Like, so yeah, I think that kind of kept me in it and that, and I don't like to be told I can't do something. I was always like, I'm five foot two. I'm a small person. And I've always been the tiny one. Right. Um, and so people told me I can't. It was kind of like, oh, okay, watch me, <laughs> watch me go and do this thing that you think I can't do. Um, so <laughs> I just had a memory pop up, so I'm going to share it um, to go along with that. When I was in soccer, uh, some of these defenders that I would go up against were pretty big people. I mean, like I said, I'm probably one of the smallest ones on the team, um, but people would see me coming and just like plow me over because 
I'm tiny and they can. So what I started doing was trying to like make myself bigger energetically. So what I would do is I would, as I was like, if we were both going for a ball or um, if I had it and a defender was coming for me, I would scream out loud and just like, oh! <laughs> because it was like, you're not going to throw me over. Like, watch out. <laughs> so I just wasn't going to be taken over. <laughs> I love that. So like, did, did they actually respond to that? Did they like pause and go, okay. They did. <laughs> like, enough so that a, a ref gave me a yellow card once for it <laughs> really they thought I was hurting and I'm like I didn't touch her <laughs> <laughs> I just I just yelled really loud like I'm tiny I gotta do something come on <laughs> oh my gosh I love this because like when we were talking before like prepping for this interview you talked a lot about how like kind of you had a lot of anxiety and like fear of failure and like that was a big deal for you so it's really interesting to hear these other stories too where it's like Wow, like you were able to like push through that. So I kind of want to talk a little bit about that just so like everyone else can kind of see what we talked about before. So it's like, wow, okay. So tell us a little bit about like what fear of failure was like for you, like growing up and even even now. Uh, yeah, so um, I grew up, like I'm a perfectionist, which is probably has a lot to do with the way I grew up. Uh, I grew up in the Mormon church, which definitely has a lot of um, strict values, um, a lot of rules, a lot of things like that. Um, and my parents did take a lot of pride in how successful we were and that we did well in things that we were good in school. We were good in sports. We were good in what we chose to focus on. Um, and with that being said, um, I was, I wanted to be the perfect child. You know, I was, I got straight A's, um, I only ever got one A minus for one semester my entire time through um, kindergarten to graduating high school. Um, so I was that, you know, like mm-hmm. everything perfect child, right? <laughs> um, and I have this one memory from elementary school um, where it just shows how hard it was to learn how to fail. For me because I wanted to be so perfect I wanted to get it right the first time every time um so there was at my elementary school they had gold tickets for good behavior and good things they had blue tickets for um bad behavior or breaking rules and I was the queen of gold tickets you know I I was I was always getting gold tickets and um they had a rule of no snowball fights at my school. So one day I got to school and there were a bunch of kids having a snowball fight and I joined in because oh that looks like so much fun just got caught up in the moment and a teacher caught me and gave me a blue ticket and I still remember (laughs) how devastated I was that I had failed you know Mm -hmm. and like I just bawled I remember the the exact spot in the office where I sat down and just cried because I got a blue ticket and like it was just this huge event for me and even as such a like young memory um from such an early stage in my life for it to be that vivid where I remember every detail um it, it just goes to show how how hard that was, you know, like I, 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 uh, I still battle with perfectionism and, and dealing with how do I deal with failure and, um, 
it's definitely evolved quite a bit since then. <laughs> we'll just say I'm not in elementary school anymore. Um, but it, yeah, it's it started from there, and I've I've grown a lot in figuring out how to handle that over the years. So yeah well that's that's pretty cool and I, I think I like that distinction between like it wasn't necessarily like anxiety as much as, as it was like needing to be perfect and like when you had an evidence that maybe you weren't perfect it was just devastating for you yep. so I think that makes a little bit more sense why even going into this and getting like that negative feedback didn't didn't like set you back right because it wasn't like you weren't being perfect you were still striving and you were being as perfect as you could so even though you got some of that negative feedback it wasn't like detrimental to you yeah uh, is that does that sound about right like am i on point there or oh yeah 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 it's it's a very interesting insight i love that so <laughs> with that like in your need to be like perfection <laughs> How has that been difficult for you, like going forward into things, like as as we talk about, like your business and and training horses and relationships, maybe with other people. Like how how has that been a difficult thing for you? Um, so starting your own business is intimidating a little bit because, like, everything falls on you. You're the business owner. You're the, you know, I'm the trainer, the the coach, the clinician, the accountant like I don't even have my own accountant I do like all my own stuff so if anything goes wrong that's on me so I mean it is a little bit intimidating and especially these days with social media as well putting things out there especially in something like horse training where you're always evolving and your technique is always growing like putting something out there that someone might look at two or three years from now and you're like oh but then I've changed and I'm different now and like just having something that's immortalized on the internet, um, I think can be intimidating as well. But just seeing it as not failure, but growth, I think is something that's helped me come through it. That every time I fail, it's an opportunity for me to say, okay, what did I do wrong? What could I have done differently? Who can I go and contact that has more information on this subject or this, you know, X, Y, or Z, um, that can help me. And I've actually done that quite a bit in the past. If I've run into a problem with a horse, um, and I'm trying to train the horse and they're just not getting it, they're not progressing. Um, I contact several trainer friends. Um, I've contacted, um, Eileen Smith, who taught me a lot when I was back in Virginia. Um, I was an intern under her. I will contact, I've contacted Dana Lovell. I've contacted Don Lindsay. I love that. I love how you've been able to take kind of this thing that, that, that would be hard to overcome in a lot of instances and you've made it work for yourself. And I think it's really cool too, how you've been able to, like, when you do fail, you're humble enough to be able to call and ask for help. Cause I feel like there's a lot of people who have that same trait of like perfectionism where it's like, I'm not going to let other people know I'm not perfect. Like <laughs> I'm going to call them, you know, and let them know I screwed up. So I think that's actually a really unique trait that you have, like to be able to recognize that and be like, okay, yeah, I failed. Now I'm going to go get help. Like it, it takes a lot to, especially to reach out. I feel like to other horse trainers who aren't, who don't have the same style as you and who could potentially like judge you for how your, how your training style is. Right. And like, be like, so I need your help. Like, I think that takes a lot. I think that speaks a lot to, to who you are and how you've grown as a person through everything. I think that's really cool. Thank you. So 
kind of going like I kind of want to stick with this for just a second but do you ever feel like that perfectionism translates to your horses as you're working with them absolutely I am a very task oriented person I like lists I like timelines I like all of that like structure and over the years I've had to figure out how to go with the horse's timeline because horses don't have a timeline (laughs) and especially as a cult starter I mean you get when I first started most horses I had 30 maybe 45 days with them and now I've created a 60 day minimum for cult starts uh, which I'm now even upping even more (laughs) Um, and so it's so hard not to get caught up in I only have x amount of days left this horse has been here a month and I haven't ridden them yet I need to get on this horse and that like that task oriented, we haven't done X, Y, and Z yet. I haven't done this with the horse. We haven't put a snaffle in their mouth yet. And for most horses, that 60 day timeline is pretty realistic. I'm able to get a fair amount done. We get a moving around on a loose rein quietly and comfortably doing walk, trot, lope, stop back, turn, um, all those things, um, being very well desensitized to things but then you get some of those horses that they just need more time. And those are the ones that, that, that perfectionism, that timeline, that structure actually gets in your way. Um, because the more you start thinking you need to get this, the horse doesn't care what you need. They don't care any of that. <laughs> they care if you are present, if you're paying attention to them. And so trying to balance the owner's needs and the owner's timeline and the owner's um, financial situation with the horse's needs can be tricky. It's been, yeah, something I've had to really learn how to handle. And even sometimes I don't always get it right. Like I lean a little more towards the horse and a little less towards the the human um, because we do have to take both of those into account. It can't just be, you know, not everyone has six months or a year to have their horse in full-time training. Um, So you have have to be able to balance that there. Yeah, that makes, that makes a lot of sense. And just from working with you in the past as, as your assistant trainer, that's like one thing I always really appreciated about you was, Hey, let's listen to the horse. But I know, like, I remember having conversations with you of like, why aren't we on this horse yet? You know, (laughs) like, well, the horse isn't ready. If we got on this horse, our butts would be on the ground. Right. But like, that is one thing I always really, really appreciated working for you was that it's like, I always trusted that's like, Hey, Camry's not going to push me past like my comfort level. Like you'll push it, push it enough for growth, but like, you would never put me in a dangerous situation where I feel like other trainers I've worked with, it was like, <laughs> you know, they're giving me the horses that they're too scared to, to ride. So <laughs> like, hop on. Yeah. You know? So I always really appreciated that about you where you're like, you, you always took me as your assistant and the horse and where they were at into consideration as as you trained and paired us together yeah that's the way it works best if one of them's not ready or both aren't ready you're in for a a rodeo of some sort usually (laughs) and I love like kind of how you touched on and maybe we can talk a little bit about this but you talked about like how you went from like 30 days to requiring 60 days and now you're requiring more do you want to touch on like what that looks like, why you're doing it, like the specifics around that? Yeah. So when I first started cold starting, 
I mean, granted it was the first time I was doing my own business. So beggars can't be choosers. I took any client that came. Right. <laughs> um, and then I also started with a, a really good client who I trained for, for years and years that without them, my business probably wouldn't have made it. Um, I've trained dozens and dozens of their horses. Um, and so their horses kind of made me, I guess you could say, um, as a trainer, but initially it was so much focused on the mechanics. They need to be able to move their hip, move their shoulder, uh, move their nose, have their shoulder follow their nose. They, you know, it was, again, there's that task, there's that list, the, the task oriented part of it. And so it, it was so much just on that and we would just go through it. And at the time I didn't have enough knowledge or experience to know when a horse was ready or when they weren't. And I, I didn't know the nuances of all the body language and all the small things you to watch for and, and just all the techniques that you have as you grow as a horse person and, and as a trainer. So I just did, you know, everything I knew how to do. And a lot of it I learned from people like Buck Brenneman, Pat Pirelli, Clinton Anderson. I kind of had a mix of those going um, in there when I started. And yeah, just very mechanical. So it was swing a leg over on the first ride and hope you can get your foot in the stirrup before they take off running. <laughs> and it's not that way anymore. I will not do that. And then just ride them through it. Most of the time they would run, they would buck and then get some of the buckers. And I have some pretty intense video of some of the <laughs> accidents my husband and I have been in, hopping on some of those horses, um, being flipped upside down, being smashed into a fence. <laughs> um, there's still a big dent in the wall at the Sevier County Fairgrounds of it's a husband size um, dent in the wall. <laughs> um, so yeah, it was exciting in the beginning, but after a few accidents and then just being able to read horses more, learning more techniques, and then realizing that you do need to take into consideration that horse's timeline. Um, or lack thereof, made me realize that I needed more time with these horses to be able to truly build their confidence in a way where I wasn't taking them so far out of their comfort zone that they felt the need to buck or bolt or rear or anything like that or kick. So being able to take that extra time and having that extra month um, really just made a world of difference, being able to have a little extra time. And even now, 60 days, especially with some horses, is just not enough to build their confidence in the way that it needs to be built. Um, some horses, especially if they've come from an owner that does a lot of work beforehand, they're great. And 60 days is perfect. And it's awesome because I can build on what the owner has done. Um, and now if I get horses that have had trauma or have had poor handling in the past, even if it's not trauma, um, just learning bad habits, um, those tend to take longer because I have to retrain their brain to go into different, a different state of mind. So instead of going into a freeze mode, I have to teach them how to come out of freeze and be able to use their body, use their brain. Um, and that all just takes time. Uh, so it's, it's a much lengthier process, but it's very thorough. You're going to get a much better horse out of it. Um, and a horse that can manage themselves instead of just one that, yeah, they know how to stop, turn, go. Um, but their eyes are like this the whole time they're doing it and, 
And don't get me wrong, I did get a certain level of confidence with horses just because of mine and my husband's confidence level that we would just ride them through it. And it was like, okay, like, let's handle this, let's work it. Um, but I think those horses would probably still need a pretty specific rider to be able to continue to be successful. Um, and now it's just a whole different thing. I feel like um, most people could ride the horses. People that are about intermediate riders can ride a horse that I've put 60 days on. Um, mainly because they tend to be pretty quiet. So they might run into a few hiccups here and there <laughs> mechanically, depending on the rider's skill level, but um, the horses are pretty quiet. Mm -hmm. uh, and I actually have, so I have every owner that ever brings a horse to me, they ride the horse before they take it home at least once um, to make sure that I can tell them how to communicate with their horse um, and that they know that I actually did my job. I ride the horse first, show them the horse's skills, and then I get off we change saddles or adjust stirrups, have the rider, the, the owner get on. And in the last eight plus years of training for the public, I've only ever had a rider um, come off of a horse twice when they rode it. And they were people who had never ridden a colt before. And um, yeah, so it's it's been few and far between. <laughs> um, and I take a lot of pride in that, in that the horses are quiet um, and confident and and going around pretty well. So, yeah, no, I love that. And as someone who's had horses in with other trainers for like 30 days, 60 days starts, your process and the horses when they come out is like night and day different from the horses that I'd get back from some trainers, you know, where it's like, <laughs> are you sure you saddled this horse? Like, <laughs> where your horses are very much like happy, like their heads are down, they're looking and chewing at every moment. Like, and that that's one thing I really, appreciate about the horses you turn out the ones that I've seen at least and I've really enjoyed your process about like allowing the horse to think through the problems versus just like plow through them because you know if they don't they're going to get in trouble you know like they actually have that chance to really think through and have like the ability to be like oh okay like this is actually not a big deal I can I can safely move through this right and they're yeah. they're that that um connection with you which is really really cool to see so guys you got to see camry's horses <laughs> um, okay so we kind of touched on like how a 60-day program looks like tell me a little bit more about like where your program's going now you said you're kind of expecting a little bit longer what is that going to look like what are you going to provide um yeah so now i am doing six month minimums and i am focusing more on longer term training um, and very much connection-based training. So something where I wanna work more hand-in-hand -hand with the owners, do more lessons with the owners, um, spend a longer period of time and be able to do more than just that first 60 days where I just barely get the horses, you know, starting to get it and then they leave. Um, I wanna be able to take that one step further and be able to refine that even more and be able to get that much more softness um, and just progress my own horsemanship so that I can take more, horse, more horses further. And horses, they wanna be listened to just like we do. And I think that's why so many of us are into horses and, and love horses so much because they do listen, you know? And, and um, but that, that connection, based horsemanship that I want to focus on has a lot to do with two-way conversations. So being able to hear what your horse is saying, 
understand what your horse is saying and be able to communicate back with them in a way that they understand um, through energy, through body language, um, and still having expectations of them. And I think that's one thing that like connection-based training can um, misconstrue is that that means you never expect anything of your horse because you always have to stay in their comfort zone. And um, that's not so much it. It's it's that you you listen and you say, oh, I, I understand you're struggling with this, but we're I'm, I'm going to put it in a way that's going to make it a little easier for you. We're going to just stretch that comfort zone just this much instead of like, okay, let's just whoo, like way up here, destroy their confidence um, and just not listen to them and make them do it anyway. Again, kind of taking, stretching that comfort zone, um, and being able to help them that way. So I, I love that new model. Cause like, I'm just like thinking back to like the first cult I ever had as a kid and I sent them off to a trainer and, you know, I get them back after 30 days and like this, this horse was just nowhere near to the point where me as a teenage girl could have ridden it, you know? Yeah. And I think like that kind of model would have been so good for somebody like me back then where it's like, where I could have gone and worked with you and my horse and learned like your processes. And then had you like hands-on watch me with them and make sure that I'm doing things correctly. And like, yeah. really like allow, would have allowed me to grow with my horse. And I think that's going to be like a huge deal, like for your clients moving forward, like they get to actually grow with your horse. Cause a lot of times yeah. I feel like you send your horse to a trainer, they have all this growth, but you're still down here, like at your yeah. riding, yeah. <laughs> expect this horse to like, to perform at your level or, or yeah. whatever. So I think that's a really, really cool, cool way that you're taking things. I think this is going to be really interesting to see and very unique. I like, I've never heard of another trainer doing this. I think that's going to be really unique. Yeah. I actually have heard that a lot of people come to me and and when they apply to bring their horse into training, they'll say, well, do you allow me to come watch? And I said, absolutely. I encourage it. That's in my contract that like you get a, one lesson every week. That's part of your training. It's not an extra cost. You get those lessons included. And they said, oh, well, when I went and talked to, you know, this trainer and this trainer, they told me I'm not allowed to come by. Like I'm allowed to drop the horse off and pick the horse up. Wow. And don't come by. Don't come watch training. Like it's a closed door policy and I was like what <laughs> like, <laughs> I'm like no come watch like come participate like there's only so much that that horse can do with me that they're that you're going to be able to do with the horse if you don't come and ride it and have me coach you you know it doesn't matter what I can do with the horse it's only with me for 60 days it matters if if you can go home and repeat that you know, if, you, if your horse understands when you're asking for the same thing, because um, that's where so many problems with horses lie is miscommunication. You think you're telling your horse this, but you're telling your horse the opposite. They listen and you get mad at them for disobeying what, you know, and it's, there's so much miscommunication. <laughs> so that's my goal is like, okay, let's get you guys communicating, connecting, like working together, having that confidence with each other. Um, so yeah, it's, it's huge to have lessons. And I mean, even if my clients don't live close, I do offer virtual lessons too, um, after they take the horse home so that, you know, if they take it home and they run into, you know, X, Y, or Z problem, they can say, oh, Hey, you know, let's do this lesson. Let's do a virtual lesson. Send me a video so I can, can tell them, Hey, you know, this is what I'm seeing. This is, let's do this exercise. Um, so there's, well, that's, that's a huge help too. Cause 
like I said, I mean, when I've worked with trainers in the past coming home and it's like, okay, I've got all these issues, but it's like, I'm almost scared to like talk to my trainer. Cause I'm like, they're going to tell me that I need to sign up for another 60 days <laughs> my budget, you know? And so yeah. I, th I think it's really cool that you provide all these opportunities after the horse goes home. Whereas like, Hey, like, you know, if they want to bring it back to you, they can, but they can also just work with you in real time at their house, which is a huge, cause it's a lot to trailer your horse to a trainer every week, you know? So the, mm -hmm. the fact that they get to like video themselves and show you like real time, cause it's kind of like, I don't know if you ever have those cars where it's like, this problem's going wrong. You take it, you take the horse to the trainer and it's like, <laughs> horse is perfect. You can't recreate it. So I think that's really cool that they have that ability to like show you exactly what's happening real time. And you get to, to see and, and give them advice on that. I think that's really, really yeah. cool I, i'm excited for you on that one <laughs> yes. so set everybody up here for success so. well, and i love that because i think there's so many trainers out there and you just you get such different feels like like your clients were saying where some trainers it's closed door you have no idea what they're doing to your horse for 60 days you know like that would scare me it's just like you my peppers and you know like my horses are like my kids and I'm like uh like I want to be able to visit and say hi you know yeah so it's just it's just interesting the different levels you get and I really appreciate your want to make it a success for people you know yeah. like to support them after the fact. I think there's a lot of them who's like, hey, like I got your horse so I can ride him perfect. Like it's, now it's up to you to figure out how to ride him perfect like I can, you know? Yeah. <laughs> Good luck. Have fun. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Don't get thrown off. <laughs> so, so I love that. And I kind of want to dive in a little bit, but like with your connection based training, like this is just kind of like a curiosity tangent here. <laughs> but have you noticed, um, because like I've definitely started moving that way more with my horses as well. And one thing I have noticed is specifically with my mare is she is much louder, like with her than she has <laughs> ever been before. Like, like, it's like, I mean, she like, it's like, okay, she knows that I am trying to listen to her. And so if I don't listen to her, like right away, she gets louder with her nose, you know? And I mean, she's, she's safe about it but like she definitely gets louder like if I'm not listening have you noticed that with the horses you work with yeah absolutely um I have one horse in training now that I've had for a while and um she she will be listened to she she, <laughs> she she's like you listen to me now um but no she it's it's not that she's pushy or like tries to push me around or, or bite. Um, but she will, she has very strong body language. So even after gosh, 19 months, I think I've had her in training. Um, when I go to saddle her still every day, if, if she doesn't feel ready to handle the saddle yet, and she doesn't want to be ridden yet, her ears will, will go back and she'll look at me. Right. Um, and now again, it's not, you know, she's not pushing into me. It's just her communicating, Hey, like I'm not ready for the saddle yet. Mm -hmm. And, um, if I wait and just kind of stand there when she tells me that, and, and, and again, it's not saying, okay, I'm not going to ride you today. There definitely are days where when I pick up on that, we will do 
groundwork or we'll go for a walk down the road and do, you know, work on something different. Um, she doesn't get out of doing work. Um, it's just, we, we do shift it a little bit. Um, but no, most of the time I will still ride her, but I just have to take that extra five minutes while tacking her up to wait for her to lose this expression and soften and be like, okay, you're listening to me. And cause she'll do the same thing with the cinch. And a lot of people would just go to immediately saddle her and immediately cinch her and say, oh, she's a cinchy horse. Mm-hmm. She is not cinchy whatsoever. If I tighten it and she pins her ears and then I just wait till she feels a little bit better about it, release the cinch when she feels better. If I do that two to three times, I can cinch her up. <laughs> you know, no big deal, no bad expressions. She feels a lot better about it. But she is that horse that like, she has a lot of opinions and she's only three. I think she will grow out of some of it as she matures a little bit. Um, but yeah, she is very loud in her expressions. She is going to make sure I'm paying attention um, because with young kids and different things going on at my facilities, every once in a while I am, I'm not present. And I'm like, you know, my kids are asking me a question or this or that, or my assistant over here is working with this horse and I'm talking with them or monitoring their horse. And Peanut is always that horse that's like, hey, come back to the present here with me, like, hello. <laughs> and uh, so, yeah, that's kind of fun. It's, I, I see it as a good thing. And I think, you know, with the youngsters, especially, you're going to see a little more of that, like, naughty behavior. Um, but if you listen to it, they actually do it less eventually. So, no, I like that because. It's been interesting as I've been starting training more of like the connected style, really trying to, to listen to my horse and she gets like, has those moments. Like for instance, I was on a trail ride with her last week and we've been working on loping and loping is just one of her anxiety inducers, which I know you and I have worked on before (laughs) with her, but I've noticed like out on the trail, she's much more willing to just go you know, and do it and like build up, like she'll get a little bit like of her anxiety, but on the trail, she's like just a lot more relaxed. She loves it out there. Yeah. We were doing some hill work and I was like, okay, like we can totally lope at least 10 of 10 feet of this. And we're going, she's trotting up and I'm like, okay, come on, let's lope. And she just, huh, you know, keeps trotting. <laughs> I'm like, no, come on. Like, like lope, you can do it. And, she's, uh-uh, and just trots a little bit faster and then <laughs> like, I ask one more time and she stomps her feet is just like no you know and I was like <laughs> okay <laughs> you know but it was interesting because like when I stopped and, and kind of thought about it I'm like you know I really do think I was asking her too much because like we really haven't done that much hill work lately and all of a sudden I'm like we were going up this pretty steep hill I'm like I don't blame her for not wanting to like immediately lope you know and like oh yeah, yeah. sure mom I'll do this because like once she stopped she's breathing pretty hard and I was like oh you need a break. Okay. Yeah. She was just like, I don't have the wind for this mom. <laughs> exactly. Cause then like afterwards gave her the break, walked her back down the hill and then she was able to lope off just fine. But it's interesting trying to find that balance. And I, I would be interested. Maybe this is like for another podcast. Cause I don't completely <laughs> like take over your interview here, but, but definitely something that we should put on our list to talk about because it is really hard. I feel like to switch from having the like mechanical, let's get this done, move their feet, like this outcome for this to like, okay, I'm going to listen to you, but like finding that balance between listening to you and letting you take over, you know what I mean? Yeah. 
them. I think yeah. that's, that's probably for another podcast, but we, <laughs> we'll have to talk about this. Mental note. Yes, exactly. <laughs> okay. So kind of just going through all of your stuff, we talked a lot about your business and everything because it's so interesting. Um, but over like the course of everything, whether it's business, personal life, whatever, what would you say is the most difficult thing you've had to overcome? Um, hmm. the first thing that comes to my mind is probably the loss of my mom, um, was one of the biggest hurdles, um, things I've had to overcome in my life. And she passed away in 2018 at the age of 59. It was a surprise. Um, it was, she wasn't sick or anything. So, um, my mom was always my confidant. I told her everything. I mean, she knew every boy I kissed, like we were more best friends than, than mother daughter. Um, she was just always there for me. She always knew what to say. She was that person that would connect, you know, she would, she would listen. She would offer advice when it was necessary and just hug me when I needed a hug. I mean, she just always knew the right thing to do. And, um, losing her was, was pretty tough. Um, so, but it's honestly, it's, it's been a really good thing for me to learn to overcome, um, to be able to move through it and not let it limit me and not let it put me down in this like deep hole, you know, that I didn't die with her, you know, that my, my life and my career and my, my passions and my loves and, and everything else in my life didn't, didn't uh, go away when she did. So. Yeah. Well, I'm so sorry for your loss, first of all, but it is pretty amazing. Like the growth that you have been able to have, because having an experience like that, it would be so easy to, like you said, almost like pass away with your loved one and, and like have things stall. So I think it's, it's really amazing that you've been able to do as much growth as you have been able to do with, with all that. Yeah. Um, what have been like some of the most helpful tools for you in, in like helping through the grieving process and helping you have that growth mindset out of something that really could have stalled and fixed your mindset? So I think probably the biggest thing is having a purpose. Um, because I had actually, my mother passed away in April. Um, I had applied for the Cokeville cult challenge in January. Um, and I got selected to compete and the competition started in June, you know, which like a month and a half ish after my mom passed and, um, having something that gave me purpose, that gave me something to do, something to focus on, um, was very helpful. Um, I think everyone's grieving process is so different, but, um, it's, it's good to have the moments where you feel the feelings and you feel the grief and you, you take those moments and that time that you need, uh, but that you don't stay there for too long. Mm -hmm. And that's where that purpose and that having something to do really helps is I think sometimes our, our support groups, uh, whether it's on Facebook or, or anywhere else can actually drag us back down. 
So I actually was in a couple of Facebook groups that were grief support groups and I had to exit the groups because they kept me in this loss mindset and in this, this hole. And, and I had to, like, I, I was realizing that, that it, seeing any of those things in my feed just, just kept, you know, bringing me back to that, um, and to that, that state that I, I is necessary to go through, but again, we shouldn't linger there. We should stay there forever. Um, so I had to exit those groups and again, just have the support of, of my husband, of my kids, of clients, of, you know, having things still expected of me, not so much to the point of you just always need to be distracted. So you never feel it. And I think therein lies the balance, right? You have to feel the feelings when they come and be able to work through them. And, but then be able to say, okay, you know, it's time to go to work or it's time to go do this and, um, and work through that. And of course, you know, horses have such a healing energy to them that there were certain horses that if I was feeling that way, I needed to go get that horse and go work with that horse. Because if I went and worked with this horse, my energy would affect that horse and that horse would entrain to my negative energy and it would be a horrible session. Mm -hmm. Now, other horses that were either more mature or would let my energy and train to their positive energy instead of the other way around, I was able to go and work with that horse and feel uplifted. And at the time I didn't see it as that, like I didn't, I don't know. I just knew which horse to go out and get. I don't know. <laughs> and like now the more I'm into this connection work, I'm like, oh, that's like, yeah, that entrainment and how like your energy, you know, either theirs is going to connect to yours or yours is going to connect to theirs and whichever one is stronger is going to win out. Um, and, and that's going to be the one. So those horses with that really strong, positive energy, it was just kind of fun to be able to feel that healing energy from them. So no, I, I love that. Um, horses really are just amazing as far as healing, whether, whether you believe in connection or not, I, they just have a unique power in, in just being, you know, and yeah. just allowing you to be and to fill and allowing you to, to have those raw emotions. Cause I think a lot of times, um, we as humans don't often let each other do that, you know, like we like hide it, suppress yeah. it. Yeah, exactly. Like, and it's just not safe either, you know, like the way that our society is built, sometimes it's just not safe to actually have those feelings and have, have that raw emotion. And so being able to connect with the horses who are safe, who will allow you to have the raw emotion. I mean, they might react to it in some way, but you yeah. know, you are safe in your emotions is, is a huge deal. And so I'm, I'm really yeah. glad you had that at that point in your life and you had that goal that you had to keep working towards too, you know, like, I, I think like what you said, having a purpose was probably a really, really big stepping stone for you just because you had, you didn't have that time you, where you had to sit and just wallow. wallow. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> of course you're going to grieve, but, yeah. but there is, there is something to say about like, like you said, with those Facebook groups, like, getting out of that headspace, getting out of the wallowing and, and just yeah. allowing yourself to feel when you need to, but also allowing yourself to move past it. Yeah. And having a, like my husband was very supportive of that too. I mean, there were some days that the grief just got really strong and I would call him and just be crying and he would say, well, just take some time, like, go take some time to like 
feel what you're feeling and, and work through it and then get back to work when you're ready. And it was nice having a husband that wasn't like, just buck up, come on. Like, <laughs> right. So, well, actually, that's a great, let's talk about Larry. <laughs> <laughs> that's a great transition into talking about <laughs> what a good man. No, and honestly, though, having a partner who supports you like that is like I'm finding more and more unique in this world. Like it, it's, it's interesting. Um, just even some of the friends that I've talked to who it's like, you know, their spouse maybe isn't that, that supportive. And so to have a spouse who is willing to like, look, look at you and go, Hey, like, I'm, I'm going to push you when you need to be pushed, but I'm also going to allow you to just be you and to feel, I think that's like super unique. So let's talk about him. How did you guys meet? Tell us about like all of that. (laughs) Well, I was dating his friend at the time, and <laughs> that's <Yeah>. good. <laughs> and we met country swing dancing at Utah State University, and uh, we danced a lot, probably twice a week for the first couple years of our of dating of our relationships. So yeah, we just went out and did a lot of fun things, and yeah, college life was great. <laughs> And so you were dating his friend. Was that like super awkward when you went from dating his friend to dating him? Um, no, because they kind of fell out of friendship oh. while I was dating his friend. So like <laughs> we just kind of parted ways. It was great. <laughs> well, I guess that's a blessing in disguise, maybe. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay, well, cool. So um, like I was going through your website and stuff and Larry is listed as your assistant trainer and um, yeah. like co-owner of your business. So like, tell us a little bit about like his role and, and what. Yeah. You- um, so especially early on, um, he actually was in between jobs for probably about two to three months. And during that time, we took on twice as many horses and that's what he did for work. Um, so we both worked the horses. I also had a newborn at the time. Um, so my oldest was brand new. So we would just tag team and I would, one of us would have the baby. One of us would be riding. One of us would be mucking with the baby on the, in the carrier, like all sorts of fun shenanigans. And, um, yeah, like I said, there's still a dent on the indoor arena (laughs) from my husband. Um, he was the one that we would put on the quote unquote iffy horses because he is a sticky rider he can ride anything his confidence level is through the roof I mean he's just like sure whatever (laughs) he gets on anything and he can ride it and it's yeah he has an amazing seat and confidence level and just he's an amazing horseman and over the years his role has gotten a little bit less and less, especially now, you know, he is working full time. So yes, he does help me out um, quite a bit, but probably the most important role he's played is he helped me be able to continue cult starting when it got tough. So I had a few bad accidents in a row um, that just took my confidence way down. And I would get so nervous to do first rides on horses um because I had like I like I damaged a ligament right here because a horse jumped sideways and slammed us into a fence and and I cracked a rib and um I just you know all sorts of, of 
iffy uh, situations and I would, I would just shake, you know, I mean, my hand would just be shaking, um, thinking about getting on some of these horses. And, um, for a while, my husband would do my first rides for me because I felt like I, my nerves were just going to make the horse be so much worse. And then my nerves also put me kind of into this freeze state. Um, even when I started, like I would do second and third rides and I would still, same thing, I'd be shaking and I'd get up there and Larry would coach me, um, but he would have to coach me. I mean, you would think cult starter for years, right? Like I got this. Um, I, I would like, I'd get in the horse's mouth and I, my, I would tense up and I, everything I knew out the window, like it was just like, I was in survival mode. Like I was just like, Oh, don't die. Don't buck. Don't buck. Don't buck. <laughs> so Larry would, you know, he would say, okay, you know, put your hands forward, loosen your reins. Um, you know, put your heels down, put your feet underneath you. Don't get up. Don't lean so far forward. Like he would, he would coach me through everything. Um, and, and snap me out of that survival mode, like freeze state of like, don't die. Um, and to the point where now I can coach myself through it. I do for, I do my own first rides every once in a great while. If there's kind of a wonky one, I'll put Larry on them. <laughs> it's few and very far between. Um, and so now I'm able to do that. And I truly believe I would not have been able to continue cult starting if Larry wouldn't have been there to help me through that because my energy and my panic would have set the horse up to fail and would have set, which then, you know, snowball effect would have made me fail and more bucking more accidents more issues and and then I would have quit because every single horse would have turned into a big rodeo and um because Larry was able to help me through that now I'm able to get on a horse I sit up there when I first swing a leg over for a first ride we just we breathe I sometimes will even like do a short little um I don't close my eyes, but <laughs> a little meditation, um, a, a lot of breath work and sometimes even this little, um, neurological exercise that resets my, my nervous system. Um, because I, I have this exercise that helps me go from that sympathetic fight or flight nervous system state back down into the parasympathetic. And that one I do use, um, quite a bit and, and I'm able to feel my heart pounding. And then within the first minute of sitting on that horse, it relaxes, but I still to this day have to do that. Uh, and it's worse depending on the horse and, and, um, they're, you know, the, the speedier ones, the ones that have a lot more go tend to get my adrenaline going a little bit more. Um, and I need to take a minute longer to like take a breath. Um, but it, yeah, it even still every, every time I swing a leg over for a first ride, it takes a little bit of work. <laughs> well, it, it's nice to hear you say that. Cause like, I feel like when we think of horse trainers, it's like, here are these people who are never scared of anything, right? <laughs> they can go ride whatever, they don't care. They have like no pain receptors because obviously, you know? So I think it, it's interesting to hear your process going through each of those points. Cause it's like, it is hard to face that day after day after day of like, okay, I'm gonna get on this horse. Yeah, he like, you know, like there is a possibility they could do some damage to you, right? And yeah takes a lot of mental control 
to be able to convince your body to do that thing. So I think it's really, really interesting to hear your process through that. And really cool that your husband is able to coach you. Like that is a very unique relationship thing right there. Cause like <laughs> I could coach my husband through anything. <laughs> like, <laughs> we do not, we do not teach each other. We do not coach each other. <laughs> well now backing up the trailer, that's a whole other conversation. <laughs> yeah. That's like, not I, that I, way. you know, <laughs> Yes, but, but like, I think it's, it's really cool that he was able to be that role for you and help coach you through that. Cause that is something like a lot of people have to go somewhere else to do and sometimes never find the right person. And it's really yeah. cool that, that your husband is that person for you. Like that's, yeah. that's so I know we're kind of running a little bit long here, but yeah. <laughs> your story is just interesting. So, <laughs> so, um, Going along with that, like you are the mom of two sweet little kids who are just the cutest, but like, tell me a little bit about that. Cause like, it is hard to be a woman and have kids and still have a business in the horse industry specifically. So like, was the decision to have kids scary for you? Um, not so much scary as it was trying to figure out how I was going to take a break from my business. And, um, so I actually took on a couple of weanlings that I was doing halter training, uh, work with and just some groundwork. And, um, I actually got kicked in the hip while I was pregnant by one of the, and I was like, Oh, maybe I shouldn't be <laughs> like, I mean, two to three inches higher and it would have been belly. Um, so, um, it's definitely like, like that part definitely was like, whoo. Um, and then I also, I made the decision to stop riding at 12 weeks pregnant and at 11 weeks pregnant, I got thrown. <laughs> oh. Oh. And that actually, I think added a certain level of, I guess you could call trauma experience because I was panicking. I mean, I thought like, did I lose my baby for like the next week after that? I was like, you know, like, <laughs> and is baby okay? And like, well, um, and so I think um, some of that like fear of horses bucking and things definitely can go back to that to a point. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's interesting trying to go into it and being like, well, how am I going to have a newborn and, and, and have and train and be pregnant and, and work and ride and, um, and it was a big transition trying to balance the needs of my kids with the needs of the horses because I'm I get so engrossed in my training that I'm like I need to like have things end a certain way and make sure that the horse is in the right state and you know when I'm in the middle of an exercise and my little toddler comes up and mommy I pee my pants or you know like you're in the little potty training and you're like <laughs> uh, like trying to have, you know, meet those needs of your kids and meet the needs of the horses and not like end a session at a weird spot where the horse gets to sit and ruminate on doing it wrong or like, um, so yeah, trying to figure that part out. Um, it has been an ever continuing journey because with every new phase that, that my kids go into, um, the dynamic changes, you know, and my kids needs change and, and, um, 
now I'm at this great point where they're both in full-time school. So that actually works very, very well. Um, but I mean, over the years, I was able to start training at my own house. So I bought a baby monitor that would reach a thousand feet. So it would reach out to my arena. And so my kids could take a nap. I could ride a horse and that way both needs were being met. So I just had to learn to work my schedule around my kids' schedule. So it was always shifting. It was never the same, um, but it's made me learn how to be adaptable because I, I love plans mm-hmm. and <laughs> to have to be like, well, this was my plan, but now because my kid woke up an hour early from their nap, now I have to change the plan. And <laughs> so, you know, just being hard to adapt. You are such a list oriented person to be like, <laughs> okay, change it, like, let's, let's go. Like, <laughs> that would be difficult. And I think like that is something that isn't talked about when it's a man, right? Like the man doesn't have to take work off. He doesn't have to stop writing. He does, you know, and, and there's just so much more that goes into planning for children as a woman, especially in my opinion, especially in the horse industry. I know that is something like my husband and I have talked a lot about where when I was training and doing writing lessons and all of that full time, it like, there was just no way I'm like, I just can't even begin to, to say, cause like at that point, like there's no way we could have not had my income. So I was like, there's just no way that I could even begin to be pregnant at this point. And it's yeah. just interesting what goes into that, you know, or it's like, you really do have to pause your business and, mm-hmm. and it's a big sacrifice. And then even on top of that, like you said, it's, you have to juggle 50 things. Like you're out there writing a cult, but you're also watching a baby monitor, you know, like, like <laughs> there's no one else, like, you know, like not one man would ever do that <laughs> or, like, or have to try to juggle focusing the horse and focusing on the baby who also needs help, you know? And, and I think that just speaks to just a separate dynamic, which again, we will be talking about, I'm sure in the episodes on <laughs> on too much longer, but it's just, it's a very interesting dynamic um, that, that you bring, but also really cool because you're making it work. And I think you have a lot to share with people because you are making it work. So motherhood and horsemanship. <laughs> so I, that's pretty much all the questions. I mean, I can ask you questions like all day long, but again, I do not want to go further than we have. So I wanted to end with just a fun kind of get to know you a little bit better question. Um, what is the most disgusting thing you've ever eaten? Let's see. Probably. Yeah, I would have to say, well, there's probably two. There's probably two. Um, one was when I was in elementary school and I went to drink one of the little milks and it had gone sour. <laughs> uh, it was not a good experience. Now, every time I'm like, does it smell good? <laughs> Is it okay? Um, and the other one would be raw oysters. Oh. I love cooked oysters, love steamed oysters. I cannot do raw. I, I, I tipped it back and <laughs> I'm like, I can't, the texture is just, oh, yeah. I can't swallow a big booger. Ugh. Oh, yes. well, now that you've said it that way, I'm, I'm the only going to think of it. <laughs> well, that's funny. So no milk for you. Well, I guess rotten milk and oysters. <laughs> I love it. So how can people reach you and find out about like what you're doing and what are some fun things you've got coming up for people? 
So my website is the best place that kind of has everything all in one place. And it is utahhorsetraining.com. Um, and there you'll find a list of events that I have coming up. Um, I put on clinics where I help you with your own horse. I do those at my location and throughout the state of Utah. I've done a couple in Eagle Mountain, Harriman, um, Pingwich, um, and I'm happy to come to new locations if you want me to come to you. Um, you can just contact me. Um, the best ways to contact me are, you'll find them on the contact me page on my website, um, but my email is jfamilyequine at gmail.com. And the events that are coming up next year that I'm most excited about is the Connected Horsewoman Retreats. So I'm doing two of those next year. Um, I did my first one this past year and absolutely loved it. Um, so you get to bring your horse up to a campground and get to be out of cell service, reconnect with our horses, ourselves, each other, um, and just have a blast. So there's going to be two of those next year. Uh, very limited spots. And if you want more info on that, you can check out my website or um, go to Facebook, um, just J Family Equine on Facebook or Instagram. Perfect. And we will link to all of those in the show notes. So thank you so much for letting me pick your brain and story <laughs> today. And I'm thank you. excited for you to be able to share this with everybody. <laughs> Thank you for listening to The Horsewoman Project. If you have a story to tell, please email us at thehorsewomanproject at gmail.com. Links to both of our websites, social pages, and emails will be added to the show notes, as well as any links that are mentioned or contact information for our guests. Talk to you next week.